0: Yorkshire, machine-breakers, Luddites, march by night. Their targets? The new machines being introduced in the woolen industry. Machines that are putting skilled men out of work, destroying a way of life. Thirteen years ago, in 1799, The Combination Laws made unions illegal. These men cannot openly defend their trade. If we cannot openly present our case, then we're forced into this form of subversive and covert action. We would prefer to speak to the owners, the world and the authorities, with an open face. But it is the law and the repeal of those statutes that formerly used to protect the working man that have forced us behind a mask and into the night. Only factories where the machines have been installed are attacked. Only the new machines are broken.
1: Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 88 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And today we are joined by a guest who who, you know, honestly has been a, a very long time coming. Uh, I can't believe we waited this long to to have him on. We're joined by the host of Tech Won't Save Us, uh, our, our our sister podcast. Uh, and it's Paris Marks, everybody. I mean, y'all y'all know who Paris is. Everyone knows who Paris is. I feel like if you listen to TMK, you probably listen to Tech Won't Save Us as well.
2: Yeah, I and, always uh, imagine that there's a big crossover audience between the two of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, so. absolutely, absolutely. I. I think I tweeted out a little while ago that, you know, like the TMK account will, you know, occasionally get, get tagged in list of people like providing recommendations of their favorite podcast or whatever. And like, it's almost always TMK and tech won't save us. And then like usually like trash future and citations needed like thrown in there, but it's always TMK and tech won't save us together. <laughs>
2: We're always together. We're the same genre of podcast. We just take a little bit of a different way toward like the Luddite critical tech politics that we're all talking about on our podcasts.
1: Yeah. I mean, speaking of Luddite as well, that that's great. I mean, we we are part of the the Luddite resurgence here. We are the Luddite Vanguard. Uh, right. at least the <laughs> Luddite podcasting vanguard. <laughs> but but I also do want to shout out as well, in case people aren't aware that uh, you've just recently started a newsletter as well called The Hammer, which I fucking love that name. And I love your explanation for it of uh, The Hammer of Lud and The Hammer and Sickle. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's perfect.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much. Obviously, like, you know, just trying to get more of that critical tech perspective, out there with the newsletter and you know if if you're interested in newsletters and you have critical perspectives on tech and like you know the verge newsletters and the new york times newsletters and shit like that is not working for you you can come to the hammer and we'll serve you and give you that critical perspective on technology you know often linking to ed stories and other critical <laughs> tech stories around there thank you thank you mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah no everyone should definitely sign up for for yeah. uh, the hammer. It's a great newsletter.
3: Yeah, I definitely, I, I think so because you know it's like you know there's some there's some nice tech newsletters, but I do think a lot of them do miss by virtue of deep down in their hearts being tech op- or optimists about like Silicon Valley's vision of mm-hmm. tech, right? Suffer from a lot of the flaws and shortcomings, and limitations that you talk about in your podcast, right? That we've talked about in ours that are just not going to get us to like really understanding the political economy of technology or Silicon Valley sufficient enough to like displace it and create a new way of developing and deploying technology,
2: right? Absolutely. And you know, there's still this kind of even even with the tech lash, even with this, you know, how there's more criticism of these companies in the mainstream publications and in many tech publications, I think as you're saying, there's still that kind of optimism, that kind of desire to want technology to serve a positive purpose um, and still letting some of those negative things um, pass or assuming that that is kind of an aberration rather than something that is kind of built into the foundations of these companies and and some of these technologies.
3: Yeah, I've gotten to, um, I won't name names, but there are definitely some reporters I've gotten into uh, arguments with in the DMs or just like entered, not beef, but like a weird... Antagonism that didn't need to happen because of like saying what I think, like, you know, other people. I think Sam Harnett is probably also one of the people who puts his point pretty eloquently that like a lot of the tech media in its is to blame for Silicon Valley's ascension, not, not discounting. Right. Like the very real benefits and advantages it had because it was embedded in the Cold War spending system and then already had billions of dollars lined up. And it's like a, a great way for capitalists to develop and like accelerate their own money and, and invest in themselves or invest in their friends. But because like media coverage at first was pretty uh, non-critical and accepting and exuberant, and uh, you know. Ale- yeah, non-critical is putting it very lightly <laughs> it uh maybe servile might be a better way to yes. think of it right <laughs> a lot of the people who blogged about it or wrote about it ended up working at some of these firms right or um you know there was a lot of cross-pollination going on still is to an extent which baffles me um and I think like that doesn't just go away, right? That's like embedded, that's in the language, that's in like the, it's in even the framing. You know, I, I, like Sam has talked about, for example, it's like when he designs a story or when, you know, or, and I've heard this also with other journalists who design stories. I have this uh, vaguely, I guess, with with a story where it's like um, there are rules in the industry for like how, for example, a business is like what leeway a business is allowed to have right on the record or off the record or when their statements accepted and, and anonymous, like it is, you know, I think the markup is one of the good publications where like they don't allow you to do an anonymous statement, right? You have to mm. put your name on it, but so many publications let it fly versus like if a worker does it, often the worker is pushed. Um, you have to like confess who you are, name yourself so it can be verified. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think I really come into this problem. We're allowed to be anonymized the workers, but like a lot of publications, you know, very, very tilted. Like, they won't really bother challenging uh, statements, right? Or if they do, it's in like a very set format or set of format.
1: That's an interesting point about like, you know, who gets to have the privilege of anonymity or off the record, right? Um, And it's not just media as well. I've recently encountered this with with academic research, which like, you know, really, really frustrated me and my colleagues. um, We're like, I'm working with some people. Yeah, I'm I'm collaborating with some people in this in this big center on automated decision making in society that I'm a research fellow in. And like we're working on a we the beginnings of a project looking at um Amazon's warehouses in Australia. And we wanted to do like they're opening up a new warehouse in in Sydney or right outside of Sydney, and it's meant to be um their first like fully automated warehouses in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So it'll be like totally outfitted with the Kiva robotics and stuff. So we wanted to do some social science research and like, yeah, like interview workers at the warehouses, interview people in the communities around these like new warehouses that are opening up as Amazon tries. It's like, you know, to to take over the Australian front where it still doesn't have a huge foothold yet. So it's like pushing aggressively, but like the university ethics requires like to do interviews with workers in their capacity as employees for a company, you have to get permission from the company to, to do that for even just like academic university ethics and shit, right? Which which shows, proves to me, I know it's the case with the, the university. I'm sure it's the case with media that a lot of this quote unquote ethics is actually about liability, the university doesn't want to get sued by Amazon or some company, um, and, and so therefore they call it ethics. But really, it's about lawyers covering the ass of the institution.
2: Yeah, like that—that's pretty wild, though. That they would require approval from the employer. You know, like you—you you can see it from the liability standpoint. But if you're looking at it from the standpoint of wanting to actually know, like how those workers feel and what they actually think about their work experiences, like that's clearly going to potentially affect what they're going to say to you, depending on where they are, like in the hierarchy of the workplace, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting um, because Amazon is making this push into Australia in the past couple of years, they've really started to focus on expanding there um, in a way that they haven't in the past. Uh, And so I think that's going to be really interesting to watch, especially as, I feel like Australia is trying to carve out this space as like, you know, we are trying to take on the tech companies in a way that um, maybe other countries haven't yet. Like they did with that news code recently, even though that was like incredibly flawed as you discussed on your show. Um, Yeah. So I I think that's interesting to watch. Like I think the gig economy stuff is, is making a really interesting um, like it's developing in a really interesting way in Australia, even though it's behind some other countries in Europe. Um, but there's the real prospect of things happening in the future in Australia. So I don't think, you know, that we should be, you know, Australia's really far away and I think it's easy to ignore what's going on down there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that there's also some really interesting things. And if we were to jump across the ditch really quickly in New Zealand, um, you know, it's also interesting because Amazon is, you know, naturally filming the Lord of the Rings show over there, massive television show, Mm -hmm. huge investment in the country. Um, There's already issues with their labor laws in the film sector having been rolled back for the hobbit films with you know um warner brothers and amazon is getting not only massive subsidies for the show for the investments that are happening there but the um government has sought to in exchange for these subsidies to develop a relationship not just with Um, prime video and like Amazon studios, but with the other parts of the Amazon company to then get them to do more work in New Zealand. So to like, to develop this relationship with, with the broader Amazon to get that into New Zealand. And it's like, are you considering the broader, you know, actions of this company? Like what this represents? Are you thinking about that at all? Or are you just thinking about like, Oh, this is like economic opportunity for our country. Right.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the answer is clearly just like the latter, right? It's economic opportunity. And now Amazon owns MGM or whatever, right? And so like their entertainment and studio arm is just going to explode even more. And I mean, that's been a huge thing for Australia as well, right? Like all the filming and stuff, because Australia was for a long time this kind of like, you know, covid sanctuary um in the in the in the world or at least in the western world and so like we talked about on the show before but you you had all these um uh celebrities you know bypassing the like you know the hard border right because they get all the they get exemptions right yeah they gotta sit in their like penthouse hotel suite for two weeks while they like self quarantine or whatever hotel quarantine but then like you know i was like you know talking to a Friends of mine in Sydney who you know saw like Natalie Portman out like having her birthday party like in a in a park uh in Sydney and so, you know like while everyone else in the U.S. was still you know like thousands of deaths a day and you know stuff like that it's like all the celebrities just be like okay and and it was great Australia loved it right because it's like a it's a it's a it's it's a it's about economic growth right so it's a, it's a way to bring some of that economy into Australia and New Zealand.
2: Yeah. New Zealand's been doing the exact same thing. And, you know, while they have the border closed, they've even rolled out like this new immigration program that is just for rich people, just for high valued immigrants, right? Um, To to bring their money into the country. And this is already a country that has been um, trying to attract that tech talent. You know, they let Peter Thiel buy a passport in New Zealand, notably. And in New Zealand has been this place where a lot of people in tech have bought second homes so that they can potentially escape the United States if you know the people were ever to turn on them and come for their wealth so they can just take off down to New Zealand uh so you know I think it's really fascinating to see how yeah <laughs> I don't I don't know look J- Jathan I know you're usually the one who talks about what what Jeremy's saying in the chat but <laughs> 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 he, just, he just said what about kim.com and you know, I don't know what's up with Kim.com recently because I think like his his kind of court issues are still playing out down there. I haven't I haven't heard an update recently. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's fascinating how um, these countries are are kind of cultivating this celebrity um, these certain industries uh, because they've been able to survive during COVID. I know this is like not tech related necessarily at all, but yeah, I, th- I think this is fascinating stuff, especially when we're thinking about some of the richest people in the world and how they c- can continually benefit and like come out on top no matter what.
1: Yeah, man, I haven't thought about Kim.com in a, in a long ass time. <laughs> I forgot that dude existed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The full the capitalists—they're always trying <laughs> to <smuggles> labor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy always coming in hot with the voices. <laughs> how how,
3: how, how do love you? it? I, I can't do you know I can't do really any impersonation.
0: I've gotten I just have gotten really good at uh, like mimicry. I mean, <laughs> I could just sit and I mean, I've I've been doing this since I was a kid. I mean, part of me wants to learn. No, I was going to say, I mean, like when I was really, really small, I was obsessed with the Muppets. Mm. So I learned at a very young age, I could do just about every Muppet's voice <laughs> until I hit puberty. And then I had a tr- I had trouble with some of them. <laughs> but right. uh, later on in life, I learned how to just better, better constrict my vocal cords. But let me tell you what the secret is, is you got to marry a speech therapist. That's really all it breaks down to. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That is. All right.
3: that. All right. I can see why that would help. <laughs> I've, you know, I would love to have, like, a Bezos impersonation and just, like, the pull out at a moment's notice. Or, like, Dude, some no one knows what
1: Bezos sounds like, though, right? So, like, I, you except know, for his, like, his wild laugh. His, like, wild eye does, laugh.
3: He doesn't <laughs> have a voice. He Uh, he speaks telepathically. So it's more like an impression of a feeling. It's like, you know, if you don't hear your own voice in your head, you have a feeling. And so whenever you start to see red or you feel like unimaginable fury or dread, that's him Mm -hmm. speaking to you actually. Right, right. I don't know if a lot of people know (laughs) that.
0: I, I I think I've actually heard his voice before and it sounds strangely like the uh, guy that called in on the AnCap hour radio show. Um, asking about the uh, font sizes for his a deep cut. Yeah, like
3: <laughs> meme deep guy. I would love to be dead. <laughs>
1: We, we bring Paris on the show and then we just, we just go loose. Everything just gets juicy. Yes. <laughs> I would
3: love to hear, I guess, how you came to doing the podcast. I know that you've been writing about this for a while, for years, right? What, what I guess led you to eventually start, you know, for our listeners who don't know, start like common start wanting to, you know, work in that medium, or maybe more generally, like uh, bring you to like a more critical tech lens, you know, because we all we all confessed our uh, various times as liberals. Or libertarians or capitalists. Mm-hmm. One way, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have a we all have radicalization journeys, right? There's a bit of a theme going on with with our, our like episodes these these uh these couple weeks now, right? Like having on uh, uh Wendy Liu and her uh, partner Jason Prado to kind of talk about their radicalization journey, right? So yeah, yeah, how how. Did, how did you get into tech criticism and tech won't save us? Uh, How did you start that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think I've been reflecting on this, like the past year, like, how did I actually get to this point? And I feel like I, I don't completely know, like I started reading Marx back in high school. And then, you know, in university, I definitely took some courses where I would have encountered a bit more of that. But um, I took a break, I, I did three years of, of undergrad, and then I stopped and took like a three four year break. And it was during that time that I started to read more, you know, communist anarchist left wing literature that I hadn't encountered before. Um, and I think that was formative in some ways. But at the same time, like, you know, I I probably still wouldn't have, or, or I probably still would have had views that like, you know, didn't really completely align with the things that I was reading as well. Like I think it took more time to develop that. Um, So when I, when I went back to university, I got into studying geography and I feel like, you know, my focus then was on smart cities and even to a greater degree, transportation, Uber, things like that. And you know, I think that helped to turn my perspective, because I was already interested in technology, you know, back in the day, I was an Apple fanboy, you know, would watch all the keynotes so excitedly for the new products, you know. Um, And so I think that, you know, I, I was definitely already getting to a place where I was had a more critical understanding of technology. But I think that, you know, studying more geography, reading critical geography, and then applying that to um, these urban technology companies and solutions and whatnot, um, I think that maybe helped me to gain a broader critical perspective. Um, and around that time when I would have been doing that, I was also beginning to write more critically about technology and that began with with urban stuff as well. Um, and so you know then after a few years, I was writing for more publications. Um, And I wanted to start a podcast for a while on this topic, or, you know, I was debating whether it would just be on technology or what it would, would it be more like on urban issues and technology, but I decided, you know, general critical technology, I think was, was a better fit, especially for the kind of stuff that I'm doing now. Um, And so that was, that was kind of the direction I went. And then the difficulty was that I when there's not a global pandemic, I tend to be on the move quite a lot. I tend to move multiple times a year, um, you know, long distances, um, you know, do a lot of travel, things like that. So it was difficult to think about starting a podcast in that kind of situation. But then when we were in lockdown and I knew I was going to be stuck here for a while, I said like, okay, if I'm going to actually start a podcast, now is the time to do it. Um, and you know, so now what I'm about a year getting close to a year and a half into it, um, you know i'm i'm enjoying it so much um and so whenever you know this pandemic starts to ease and and i'll be able to move again i'll have to figure out how exactly it works to record a podcast on the go but for now it's all good and yeah it's great i love it
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that i mean that's why i think like the pandemic <laughs> was a big boom for podcasting for sure i mean that's how like we started tmk um in part because like well like I, I was doing some podcasts, especially around the time when when my book came out in March of 2020, which is like right as the pandemic was kicking off. So it was like impossible to do any kind of uh, press or whatever for it, and, you know, in person. It was all like podcasts and stuff, and um, and yeah, I mean, like uh TMK in 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 large part i think owes a debt of gratitude to Tech Won't Save Us um because like you had me and Ed on like really early like separately um but like around that time like i had been doing some other podcasts and i just really enjoyed doing podcasts i was like oh this is this is fun like this is fun to just go on and talk about things I'm interested in with other people for for like an hour plus or whatever um, and like around that time like Ed and I have been like kind of like shit posting back and forth with each other on Twitter and kind of like getting to know each other on there and then like I, I, I like hearing um, hearing Ed on Tech Won't Save Us and I was like Damn, all right. This can, this dude can do more than post. <laughs> he can talk too. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so like, yeah, I think that was a big, that was a big impetus where I was like thinking about, Oh, I want to start a podcast. Who should I, who, like, who could I do a podcast with? And then, um, I don't know if we've ever told this origin story, uh, in a free episode. I think we did in like our first freemium episode. Um, but uh, yeah, like Ed interviewed me for a piece that he was writing for Vice. And that interview ended up just being like an hour and a half of us just talking, like basically doing a podcast. <laughs> and, and then I was being like, uh, uh, at the end of it being like, yo, you want to just do this like every week? You want to just start a podcast?
2: I remember that though. I remember Ed like <laughs> citing your work in his pieces and I was like, you know, there's something happening here. And then when you guys <laughs> uh, announced the podcast, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. No, that was good. That was great. Cause I remember, yeah, Jay did have joked about it a bit too. Right. Uh, Cause I was like shit posting at the early hours. Like you, you were waking up and I was still up shit <laughs> into
1: the <Yeah>. fucking night
3: <laughs> right uh, what my insomnia was really at it you know <laughs> uh, you know so that's that's the origin story shit posting Twitter's good actually Twitter <laughs> yeah, can be twi- really, really Twitter, good yeah
1: th- thank you thank you Jack <laughs> right
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Twitter's not all bad
1: right <laughs> just a lot of it
3: we're yeah, though. Yeah. You know.
1: <laughs> Just the like, you know, the 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 irony poisoning that it's given me. That's that's kind of bad. Uh,
3: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. The emotional distance from the uh, from the fall of the world and the collapse of our ecosystem that is bad. That's that won't help us.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you, you know, <laughs> the, the people together over shit Over posting. jokes. That's good. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'm just waiting for the new feature where he tries to figure out how to make us all like Bitcoin nerds, you know, because that has to be coming.
3: No, that Uh, is, I think he is developing like that tip jar feature mm -hmm. and I know it's going to have a crypto element at some point, right? Because really, you know, I think that is like, I feel like he probably thinks that's like something that needs to happen. A very public platform that people use needs to have Bitcoin easily Tradable, so that then people no longer just see it as like a speculative money laundering asset, but as like a fun little token that you can trade that also is worth some money, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, this is a huge thing with the crypto nerds and, and Bitcoin evangelists, right? Is they want it. They want that legitimation. Yeah. They're fanatic, but they want that legitimation. That's why, like, what's happening with El Salvador is like like they're latching onto it so hard is because like. You know, th- it shows this is not just a uh, a commodity or or a little uh, you know absurdist distraction. No, this is legit legal tender, right? And uh, uh, what Jack had that tweet um, that I know a bunch of people, uh, all of us included, dunked on, but where you know, like the pre- the president of El Salvador was talking about how he was going to use volcanoes uh, to you know to to power the mining, an idea that he got from a like Twitter spaces call that he just like hopped in, right? Just randomly hop. Imagine the fucking president of your country just hopping in a random Twitter (laughs) spaces call and taking policy suggestions from people that are like, yo, bro, you should use volcanoes, man, to like power
3: this shit. Yeah, we should use volcanoes. We should throw the mining rigs into volcanoes. That's what we should do. And I think that that would actually be really good. That would create a lot of value. That would free up the bottleneck for mining rigs, too. I mean, that would you know, create some jobs, I'm sure. Yeah, and, people-
1: and, and Jack was talking about how like this proves that Bitcoin incentivizes green and sustainable innovation. Right, right. 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 <laughs> some wild shit. Just people can say whatever they want. That is the bad thing about Twitter, is you are allowed to go on there and just post whatever you want. that you should not be allowed to post whatever you want
2: (laughs) it it has been wild though right because you know like i've never really been like a bitcoin person like into crypto anything like that and i used to just think it was like some weird thing that was like happening on the internet like whatever but in the past year like i have just become like a hard like anti-cryptocurrency person like just seeing how much this has exploded and like all the kind of hype that has been created around it and how like they're always trying to downplay like the negative aspects of this, like the environmental ones are, are one piece of it, but like it goes so far beyond that. Um, and I feel like as this thing is growing, like it only gets more and more negative. And now like after the Miami conference, like whatever it'll be last month by the time this airs, whatever Um, seeing just how like fucking crazy these people are. And then to see them like embrace this, this like authoritarian millennial president of El Salvador who is just like taking advantage of this hype to get it for his own country and to try to like cover up how he's like you know basically kicking out the judiciary and like taking over the country um, but he gets all this hype because like Bitcoin is like quasi-legal tender even though it's all denominated in USD still yeah. or something yeah. like, I like I, tether. I, tether. yeah yeah like tether. yeah, <laughs> yeah
3: totally um, totally good um, stuff yeah yeah right yeah we, nothing suspicious going on with that though right? no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think also it is interesting to see you know i have friends who are like and you know people i know interact with and in on online and and in real life that are like really adamant that like there are some good things that can be extracted From these cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, or like privacy elements, or like decentralizing or anonymized features. And it's like, maybe, but like, um, we gotta, in the context of this incredibly messy thing that we have in no way, shape or form contained any of the negative aspects of, you know, just throw the baby out with a bathwater. I think that we have to do that in this case, you know, there's some things, you know, there's a lot of, we all, you know, agree. There's some things that just don't need to be around, right? And I don't think a good enough argument has been made for why cryptocurrency should be allowed to flourish and we and give them time to get more ingrained into the, you know, day-to-day life or infrastructure of the world. While at the same time, we have no real solution to the climate change, or to the ecological cost, or the ex- electricity costs or the real cost on like computing infrastructure, right? Because they need these like ridiculous graphics cards. Uh, we have no real solution to like the role that they play in black markets. We have no real solution to the money laundering. We have no real answer to any of the problems, and are. And so it is a little frustrating, like you said, where it's like a lot of people are just like, no, no, no. But like, we're almost there. Like, this is, we have a fix. And it's like, I haven't seen a like really any real proposal that has tarred back things we've been screaming about f- since it first came onto the scene. Like what, a decade ago?
1: We might have some. I, I don't. We might have some listeners who, because there is like a like a leftist blockchain contingent, yeah. right? I think there's like a like a, a blockchain DSA caucus or whatever, right? Like <laughs> blockchain socialist.
3: For example, Spain. You know, Yevgeny Morozov's wife worked with the Spanish government, and they had this uh, for, and decode EU, and they had this really interesting idea for doing like creating a sort of global blockchain system for whistleblowers so that they could be truly anonymous and anyone in any government would be able to submit files and you would know you'd be able to verify what government they were from, but you wouldn't be able to prove who actually got the files just that they're real, right? Um, you know, and, and some other additions to that system so that we would be able to, it would be much easier. Like the second you see something is wrong, you just share it. Right. That sounds cool, but I have no idea how you do that and divorce it from the cryptocurrency mania that is going on right now. I'm sure, yeah. Like, I'm sure we do have listeners, right? On, on your pod, too, probably, that are like cryptocurrency advocates, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I feel the same way I do about them as I, I feel the same way with them as I do with flying cars, you know? Like, I'm not going to, I, I know. <laughs> I'm just, no.
1: <laughs> yeah. Not like, uh, Dave, David Columbia, wrote this book in 2016 called the politics of bitcoin software as right-wing extremism right and like he traces the you know a lot a lot of the the cyber libertarians and and uh like neoliberal you know mont perlin you know all of the ideology uh that is like baked into into bitcoin and into the blockchain in general like he traces that i remember seeing that book when it came out, and this was a time when, like, I, I also was not paying attention to blockchain or Bitcoin much. I still really don't pay attention to it much at all. But, like, just through osmosis, uh, like, you, you got to pick up some of it. I remember seeing that book and being like, all right, like, this is, like, it's pretty interesting, you know, pr- pretty, like... Uh, uh, maybe like a hardline argument to be like, you know, th- this is like far right extremism baked into this technology. But now I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, no, he was right. <laughs> My, David was right. <laughs> and, and he, I, was I, I, of, like,
2: he was ahead of the game. Yeah. <laughs> really? <That's very laughs> yeah.
1: And it's everything that you guys are just saying as well, where it's like, I have yet to be presented with that argument of how do you purge this, this technology and this system of, that right wing extremism of those right wing politics of the like noxious uh you know environmental costs social costs political costs like how do you purge it of that i've yet to see uh a convincing argument for how like yeah how do you and i think this could maybe get into something bigger as well like that luddite question of what do you smash because you're like this is you know this is just uh it can't be saved right versus like uh what like what can you actually like save by purging those politics or appropriating it in some way
2: i feel like when i think about the the cryptocurrencies in particular um i think there are two things that i really come away with first there's this kind of fetishization of decentralization and um distributed technologies or whatever um that tries to kind of ignore um, how these things can still be used in really negative ways that don't kind of show the kind of cyber libertarian utopian kind of politics that are associated with it that I think is like a general bigger problem when we talk about like technologies and networks and, and things like that. But I think, it, you know, as you're talking about the Luddite politics as well, and and how we approach it through that lens, I feel like personally, and obviously, you know, as I've said, I'm kind of anti-cryptocurrency, but I think that this is an example where just because a technology exists, we assume that it should exist, that it has a place. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see this with so many different technologies, but I, I think it's a good example where it should be one where we say like, wait, like maybe this isn't working and like this thing shouldn't exist. But in so many areas we can't even go that far like it's like yeah but you know it's around like what are we gonna do how are we gonna stop it and it's like no like some of these technologies like do not display um a benefit to the public good the social good and so it shouldn't be difficult to then look at them and say like no this thing sucks this thing is like hurting the environment. It's encouraging these really negative practices. Sure, you're fetishizing it through these ideas that like decentralization is great or whatever, when it's really not displaying those politics at all. So we should be okay with saying like, no, this shouldn't exist. Maybe we can develop something better. But this particular implementation is against the public good is against what we want. And you know, it's not something that should be around at all.
0: Not to change the subject, uh, when Teslas were first introduced, like people were like praising that you know it's like it's environmentally friendly. You're not going to be using gas and everything else, and not realizing that the the creator I, I don't I don't want to say inventor because I'm pretty sure most of those patents for Tesla were purchased or take uh, just outright stolen, uh, allegedly. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it started off as like a environmentally friendly or like, you know, something that, uh, most leftists I know are environmentally friendly people, but they're not going to be buying any Teslas because all the, all the baggage that comes along with Elon Musk, I feel like that's the same thing, you know, with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. Like even with, and and I think there's also uh, a lot of it is just also just informing people as to like what the politics are, how the thing is actually designed as well. Like Tesla is a really interesting example of this as well. Cause yeah, it's like, you know, electric vehicles okay great i mean ultimately our goal should be abolishing like the private vehicle anyways right and having like like a, a network of of public transportation um, a network of you know like you know whether it's like co- driver co-ops or something right like something where you don't need to have um, this private vehicle and all the uh, noxious infrastructure that comes along with it, which is really like the big problem here, is like all the highways and all the you know you 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 gotta you gotta jump in your car to go to the store, whatever. So like you know, but but something like a Tesla uh, seems like a, a nice kind of transition period there. But like you know, I was talking to some of my friends and colleagues who are you know academics who study you know things like. Uh, the socio-technical energy systems and, you know, stuff like that. And I, I told them about, and, and they were unaware, I told them about how Tesla is designed to have all this, like, you know, DLC baked into it, right? Like, like you you purchase a Tesla, this, like, base model Tesla, but then, like, all like basically to unlock these like software upgrades, like things already built into the car, but they're called things like an acceleration booster, right? Which all it is is a is software that uh, artificially like limits the speed of the car unless you buy the acceleration booster DLC download, uh, you know, whatever. As like explaining like, no, this is how the, 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 the vehicle is designed, right? It's not just about Tesla as... A, an electric car that you know does or does not work really well um technically does you know it does look very like uh cool and it, like has a nice aesthetic to it so it doesn't look like you know like a prius for example right i think it can kind of coax people into oh i can have an electric car and it can be like kind of sporty and it can be kind of cool and it can be this thing that is a uh, you know part of my personality like a lot of people's cars are um, but then like explaining to them, yeah, but then you have to look at how it's actually designed and the business model of the Tesla. And they were like, fuck, I didn't know that. And that sucks. <laughs> like that sucks so bad.
0: Like, yeah. Have you ever bought a bought a hamburger before and paid the base price for the burger and got charged 15 K for some mustard. And a couple <laughs> couple <laughs> yeah,
1: <pickles?"> exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> but it, it's fascinating, right? Like. The the Tesla, as you're describing there, like also brings in these elements from technology. You know the DLC. You know learning from the video games industry and what they've been able to do to like you know build more money out of their customers. Um, but it, it's also a fascinating example of kind of greenwashing the automobile industry um, to say like you know we don't need to actually get rid of automobiles in order to solve the sustainability of our transport systems. We can just convert them to batteries and have these like fancy sports cars and you know all good we don't need to change anything else because you know part of elon musk's bigger vision is you know the um the suburban homes with the solar panels and the batteries and all this kind of stuff right it's like keep everything the same just bring this electrification in, and all of a sudden it becomes sustainable. And I think it's really fascinating, you know, Andre Gors back in the 70s was writing that like the automobile itself kind of has these bourgeois politics built into it because it promotes the individualization of transportation and of life, right? So you just see yourself as an individual wanting to go really fast in your vehicle, uh, pass everyone else, get through traffic, get to your destination, and not really have any care for the people who are around you. And I feel like that is kind of backed up by recent studies. You know, there was one out of, out of Australia last year, the year before, that showed like a bunch of drivers see cyclists as like less than human or cockroaches. And it's like, so this is how you see the environment around you. This is how you see people who are not in these massive um, iron cages, as John Yuri said. Um, so yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really fascinating to reflect on what that does to our um, to our communities, to our cities, to our community, to the, to the places that we live in. Um, and then how, you know, we're not really solving that if all, if all we do is to replace an internal combustion engine with a battery and say like, okay, everything is solved Now we're all good. We can just keep like consuming the same way as we did before.
1: A battery that has like, you know, all kinds of politics baked into it as well right like thinking about the work of people like um Thea Ria Francos right and like the rare earth minerals um politics of you know lithium you know from brine to battery as her uh, as her her project is called and uh yeah uh, and and that's something that we don't really grapple with much at all as well as having that like that life cycle assessment view of these technologies right like it is this it is a fetishization right the the object becomes completely alienated and detached from all of the uh inputs and capital and labor that went into creating that thing um maybe we can talk more about i i want to bring back a little bit you know you were talking about uh, how you were studying geography, and that and, and that was like a big thing that kind of helped radicalize you, which is a, a interesting coincidence. And I would love, to, I, I I think one that is more common um, than we know as well, because like that was actually what made me into a, a Marxist and a political economist was geography. Um, it was when I was in grad school, right? Like I was doing grad school. Uh, you know, doing a degree in science and technology studies. So I knew I wanted to study technology and study it critically. And like, I'd been starting to read some social theory, and that's what really, like, Finally, allowed me to um, completely leave behind all of my youthful dalliances with uh, liberalism and libertarianism and stuff like that. Is actually like reading social theory and being like, "Oh shit, have you guys thought about this power thing? This is wild! <laughs> like, like power and like social relations. Like this. This is this is crazy." Uh, <laughs> and so, like, I started working on a project about urban technology, and because of that, I started doing a bunch of my own reading on urban geography, and that was the path that led me towards, like, human geography, which is, like, really the only bastion of, like, uh, Marxism and political economy in, in the university um, is like human geography, much to uh, contrary of the right wing who think that like all professors are like Marxist indoctrinating their students fucking wish, right? It's like only some geography departments in some universities that, where that is actually the case.
3: That's funny you say that because I remember even as far back as high school, we offered like human geography classes, but the sentiment was like, "Don't take them unless you're required to take them because they're not like, they're not like." I was at a STEM school, so they're like, "They're not the sciences, you know. know, They're not prestigious. You're not going to get a job with a big tech company, or you know, or any or something like that. If you don't work at uh, if you don't." if you do that class right if you do other classes right you need to optimize every single class you take for your application to college so that you can optimize your grades in college so that you can get a job so you can optimize your resume so you can get the job whatever that is
2: yeah um, yeah unfortunately yeah. or luckily i think we don't have that same degree of pressure in like canadian high schools um maybe in like the bigger provinces but i'm from newfoundland and labrador so like you know i there certainly wasn't that kind of pressure here. It's pretty easy to like jump from high school to the university, even with shit grades, if you want to. Um, But I think that even when you look in like um, geography departments at many universities, there's also this divide between, you know, as you're saying at your high school, like this divide between the physical geography and the human geography side of things. Um, And, you know, I think, I can't speak too broadly, but I think that the physical geography side of things is often better resourced than the human geography side of things. So it's more social sciences than physical sciences. Um, and yeah, so, I, you know, I think it's an interesting um, comparison uh, what's going on inside those departments. But I, I can expand on things if you want. I don't know if you have a specific question or thing you want to talk.
1: No, about. I wanted. I wanted to lead us towards. Yeah, I, I in part, wanted to share that like geography was a huge part for my own like um, becoming a Marxist, becoming a political economist, and like looking at technology through that lens, identifying more as a political economist academically than anything else. Um, and that was like all like my own independent study in ge- like in geography, like during grad school. But I I, I wanted to link that up with, you know, we were just talking a lot about transportation and I, I know you have a, a forthcoming book from Verso focusing on transportation. Th- this is your chance to tell us about your work, uh, Paris, because, you, you know, on Tech Won't Save Us, you're always the interviewer. People don't really get a glimpse into, like, who you are, what you're working on, what you're thinking about, um, except through the kinds of questions and people that you have on the show. Um, but so... I feel like a lot of people aren't even aware that yeah you you are like finishing up a book on transportation for Verso. I was wondering if you could give us a little rundown, you know, do you got you got a title for the book? Uh what's the book about? What's your argument with it?
2: Yeah, so the book is called Road to Nowhere at the moment, you know, because it is about transportation and the the intersection between transportation and technology, what Silicon Valley is proposing for the future of transportation. And, you know, naturally, as from our perspectives on the show, I think, as your listeners will know, um, it's very critical of what they're proposing for the future of transportation, um, the problems with these proposals, um, and, you know, what we should instead be thinking about as we think about, you know, what the future of transportation in cities should look like, and and even more broadly, what the future of cities should look like. Um, but you know, that's, that's a, a more minor part of it. It's more focused on transportation. To your to your point about um, your studies through geography, things like that, Like I had a similar experience. Um, you know, my undergrad was in political science. Uh, that's what I started with. And I didn't Make the switch to geography because it would have required me to stay in my undergrad longer, and I didn't want to have to do too many courses. But near the end, I did more um, geography. And in political science, m- my greatest interest was also political economy. That's where um, I got acquainted with world systems theory, things like that. Um, and so that certainly helped to give me a perspective that I didn't have before on these broader kind of global interactions, capital flows you know, the way that the system is set up to benefit the North and the core um, and exploit, you know, the South. And I think um, the perspective that I have on electric vehicles certainly comes from recognizing that many years ago and, and learning about that. And then, you know, I went into the geography, as I said, my focus was more on urban and transport geography. Um, and, you know, in, in my studies, you know, obviously reading David Harvey, the Lefebvre, people like that, um, learning about this kind of Marxist, this kind of left-wing um, perspective on on geography, and applying that, and learning more about it, um, and you know, through um, the studies that I did in my masters, uh, learning more about how these ideas and these policies are transferred between cities, how these things like uh, influence the way that we think about cities and, and societies, and all these sorts of things. Like it was really fascinating to see that kind of evolution, and then I've tried to bring that historical perspective as well to the book so it's not just like you know looking at what has been proposed in the past five years and saying like okay this sucks but trying to go back to you know when it comes to ride hailing what was happening with taxis and through taxi regulation back through um the 20th century or when it comes to electric cars how did that evolve from you know the turn of the century um you know between the late 19th or late 1800s early 1900s when automobiles were coming in and there were electric cars all the way back then how did that evolve through the 20th century you know things like that trying to get this inner this historical perspective and then using that to also kind of critique what is happening now with you know the the general kind of critical perspectives that I have on tech and and cities as well and so the the book in a way is the culmination of a number of years of research and writing on these topics for a variety of publications, but also through my master's research and, you know, through writing my thesis. Um, And so, you know, I recently started a PhD. And so the book is kind of capping off that research in a way, um, as I move into another realm of research with the with the PhD.
1: Can't be having these PhD students coming into their programs with books already and a long <laughs> list of publications and making the rest of us look bad. Come on, man.
2: <laughs> what are you talking about, man? You're publishing like awesome articles all the time in these journals. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but I didn't come into my PhD with that. <laughs> 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 all right, let me hit you with a, a, a rapid question here Flying cars, right. good or bad, Paris? <laughs> bad, very bad.
0: <laughs> Make man. them
3: proud.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: also yeah yeah also big big asterisk big asterisk when anyone asks the question not fucking happening yeah. anytime soon
1: <laughs> i know i always think of that uh that that david graber piece right um on <laughs> flying cars and the rate of profit and and like you know uh, in part that is about him talking about these like failed utopian visions uh and and the you know in the political economy of that right the fact that like no actually it's like the like the constant need to combat the tendency of the rate of profit to decline that leads to you know these th- these failed visions but also these like failed utopias and you know there there is that like You know, Baffler uh, hosted this debate between David Graeber and Peter Till, right? Because Peter Till famously was like, you know, we were promised, uh, you know, flying cars and all we got was 180 characters or whatever, right? Talking about, you know, Dude, throwing some shade on twitter
3: <laughs> it was like 70 then right that was before they doubled it so <laughs> yeah. we could do our
2: <laughs> um, it is it's really interesting though because when you look at that when you take that historical perspective as well when you go back beyond like you know 2010 you see that like so many of these things like obviously we know flying cars were proposed in the past a number of times and they thought you know they were going to have them by the year 2000 and they never came but like you can go back to the 1920s and see them predicting autonomous vehicles all the way back then and like mm-hmm. you know they're a couple decades away but they're going to happen and then they don't happen and then in the 40s they're going to happen again and then in the 60s they're going to happen again and it's like all these things happen over and over like we're promised them over and over and they never arrive and so we're supposed to believe that this time is finally going to happen like you know fully automated luxury communism like i i always i always harp on this book but it's like it's taking all of these promises like at face value. And it's like, mm. we shouldn't be basing our, our whole vision of the future on these ideas that have been promised so many times. And like, they're not happening. Like by the time the book is published, we can already see that automation is not killing all the jobs. Like, I, I don't know. I, I could just rant about this all day, but it's just, like we're promised these things all the time and we're supposed to like take them seriously all the time. And the media gives them this like air that they don't deserve. And it's just so frustrating because we, because then like a few years later we can see, Oh wow, look, it was bullshit. We all, well, we didn't all predict this, but like people like us could see this. Some people like us, some people were writing, you know, back in the early days of Uber that it sucked like, and, but you know, it just doesn't get noticed because like we, we want these things to happen. The the general discourse wants these things to happen and it's just like, can we please? Like-
3: In the 20th century, they didn't have algorithms, they didn't have uh, artificial intelligence, they didn't <laughs> have advanced electronics. We know now those are the things that you need to have autonomous car
2: (laughs) maybe this time we are closer to them yeah and you know the singularity is just a few years away ed
3: yeah it is it actually is i think it's actually happening in uh 24 years right
2: (laughs) it's like that guy who like keeps predicting the end of the world and then it doesn't come so he predicts it again a few years later and like he he still has this cult following because they want yeah, to believe that, the to Yeah, gonna I, end.
1: I just read. I read the tablets wrong, right? Like I, yeah. I forgot to carry the one. <laughs> oh my I god! Was in, uh, I was raised
3: in. Was raised Seventh Day vanished, and I think the premise of the belief system, a Protestant belief system, is the world was predicted to end in eighteen twelve, so su- suspiciously close to the Civil War. But whatever, you know, predicted to end around then, um, or not? Sorry, not the. Not eighteen twelve. It was. It was actually. I think it was predicted to end much closer to the Civil War. Eighteen twelve was the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I that's when Canada burned down the White House. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I promise. I promise. I know my U.S. history, uh, listeners. But yeah, we were supposed to end around coincidentally around the time that slavery was coming more into a you know a focus in uh, mainstream debates about whether it should exist or not, and then the world didn't end. And then very sad. So the, the and like I think a lot about how they lost legitimacy around the prediction, but then like galvanized into, well, it's because we weren't living pure enough, so we have to live by this lifestyle. And similarly, I notice, and we've talked with Wendy a little bit about this, the echoes of this sort of religious like nomadism that is in uh transhumanist thought where it's like okay the predictions don't happen that's because we didn't commit if we had committed if we had been faithful if we had been pure if we had been committed and serious then it would have happened by now so we need to double down actually that's what we need to do now
0: right imagine we all fall asleep and wake up in 20 years and every in every mega church in the united states is just a Techno Christ church? No. <laughs>
2: oh, no. <laughs> it's gonna happen.
0: I just I just watched
3: Snow in my mind, it's just like we're gonna have a nice portable arc. That's, I mean, we wouldn't even build that, you know, there's no fucking way it'd just be a bunker. There's no way,
1: yeah, I'd no, no, yeah.
3: even that movie is a little hey, too utopian. Hey, maybe, China's <laughs> maybe China's building, building trains, oh, yeah, yeah. The one belt road, actually, that's what it is. It's <laughs> building a uh, snow piercer train, but for Eurasia, right?
1: right. <laughs> yeah. So, I brought up flying cars in part because, um. Uh, Melbourne. Because you're was in Melbourne. Chosen...
2: Melbourne was supposed to be one of the places. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. okay. Uber was Mel- Uber Melbourne was Uber. chosen by <laughs>
1: Uber Air to be one of its three trial cities uh, for these like electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. These like you know they were supposed to be the flying taxis, which is also I mean very funny, right? It, it, like mm-hmm. you know Uber ke- Uber kept up the charade for a very long time until they you know like last like late last year. <laughs> Sold right until the day
3: of. D- I'm sure they had communications like the week, the month before about how this was the future, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, we sold it all." Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, they they
1: sold it off uh, for for you know, I, I think like o- only like seventy five million dollars to yeah some <laughs> baked- company called Joby, like just a fire no,
3: sale. It was also a deal where they essentially paid that company to like take it off of their hands. That's really what happened there. They like got an equity stake in them, and they gave. And it was uh, I think it was another one of those reverse equity stakes that they do, like when they exit a market, like what they did with uh, DD uh, and what they did with Yandex, where it's like you get some equity, we get some equity, we give you a little money, you give us a little money, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Just,
2: yeah. Just when the they way pulled out all, all those big books. bets. Yeah, mm-hmm. when they pulled out of all those big bets last year, like the micromobility, uh, when they got rid mm-hmm. of Jump, when they got rid of the autonomous vehicles, when they got rid of the flying cars, it was all like basically paying other companies to like, take it off of our hands.
3: It's so wild that the value didn't collapse at that moment then. I remember it's like now all of that justified Uber being anywhere north of like a billion dollars, right? The idea that it was going to... you would. You'd log on. You'd wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, I want to go to bodega, and then you'd go on the micro mobility uh, section of the app, and you'd get on a scooter, and then you'd be like, oh shit, I gotta go to work, and then you'd get on the fucking either you'd use it to or uh, to get on a bus, or you'd use it to get a ride here, and then you'd go to work, right? And then you're like, oh, you know, I want to go uh, on a trip or some bullshit, and then you'd take a flying taxi, right, to JFK, and then fly off to wherever you wanted to go. <laughs> None of that. Was ever going to happen, but <laughs> you know, then, but then they sold that as the lie, and then they sold it off, and then they sold off everything, right? So they're never going to get a monopoly, and they're never going to get the sci-fi dreams.
1: I'm am a little sad about it, to be honest. I mean, the company Joby that now, like you know, that that uh, owns Uber Elevate, as it, it changed its name from Uber Air to
2: Uber Elevate. Um, it was using like, both the names Elevate. Elevate yeah. was like the division, and Uber uh, Air. was like the so it was like it right. was like it was like Russian dolls, where you're like constantly, you know, trying to find what's what's <laughs> at the center. <laughs> the, yeah. the,
3: the first time I saw them use both was the was like one week where they were like, yeah, it's going to be super cheap coming from JFK. Then like that same week there was a helicopter crash in Manhattan, and then. Like, for like a week. <laughs> I, I was, I was gonna point. say,
1: like, I'm kind of sad. I mean, the uh, the company Joby still says <laughs> bullshit, but they still say they're on track to launch the flying taxis oh, in 2023, yeah. which was Uber's yeah. original plan. But, they can't, <laughs> but as of December of last year, they cannot say whether Melbourne would would still be involved or not. But uh, low key, a little sad because, like, I, I, I would love to have a front row seat to watch one of these uh, Uber Air uh, helicopters is just fucking like crashing the yarra <laughs> in the yarra That's how river. I want to die
2: That's I want you die. know s- speaking <laughs> of that though every time i'm in melbourne seeing those fucking helicopters land on the yarra river it just drives me mad i hate it <laughs> and so do to it? imagine that uber would be doing that as well like it made me so angry
3: <laughs> they literally land on the on the river yeah so they've
2: got these floating
1: uh oh, like helipads where like there is yeah, I mean, it is a service <laughs> where, like, I mean, it's just like a like a tourism, like a sky tourism service where you can, like, you know, get this helicopter tour of Melbourne. But they lift off and land off of this floating helipad on the Yarra River, and I've 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 like walked across the bridge where the helipad is, like as a as a helicopter was like coming in for a landing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that that kind of stuff is. So wild, but it's like, all right. On one hand, it's like, all right, this kind of like tour, like tourism, like a you know a, a helicopter tour of the city. But to think that it's a taxi service that you hop in that and it's going to like take you to the airport or something, which um, famously like getting to Melbourne's airport is a is a pain in the ass in large part because. There is no train service there. There's no, like, public transportation to the airport. You got to take these uh, these buses or... or you got to hop passenger. on Skybus, man. Yeah, you got to hop on the Skybus, <laughs> which is, you know, it's annoying. It's not like Sydney, which actually has, like, a train that goes directly to the airport and to the city. And, you know, like, Melbourne is trying to build up their... Their public transportation, but it's you know it's going to take ages for that to happen, right? Like this is all years in, in advance. So I, I think it also speaks to that idea that something like Uber Air was you know it's a it's a workaround, right? Like you don't need to build trans this this infrastructure for public transportation because we can just have an Uber Air service that takes you there. I mean, you know, not not withholding the fact that. Uh, how many people can you squeeze in an Uber Air uh, helicopter? Like one, two, maybe three people. As many right? as you, as want. Many as you mean, want. There's a difference
3: between how many sh- should you and how many can you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> These fucking clown car helicopters. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a ride share. I mean, it is a ride share. You just, it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable.
1: You know?
3: <laughs> but uh,
2: The pizza, yeah, they always try to like downplay in all these solutions is that it's just for rich people ride hailing is is a bit more than just for rich people but like boring company tunnels just for rich people flying cars just for rich people so many of this so much of this stuff is promoted for the masses but it's just for rich people and they don't want you to know that because then like they wouldn't get these awesome headlines in like the new york times and all these publications Um, You know, lauding it as like the future of transportation, because you can't seriously argue that if you take it seriously. and, And none of these proposals are ever serious. It's just like to make things more convenient for the rich people who are dreaming them up. It's like... Yeah, there's this guy, Jarrett Walker, he's a he's a transport consultant, transport planner, and he talked about this idea of elite projection. So all of these ideas that come from this, these rich people are projections of the things that they would want in their lives. And they don't consider how something that will work for like a small number of rich people won't work when it's expanded to the general public, which is the case with automobiles with the use of automobiles, right? We literally had to like destroy the city and rebuild it to make room for all these cars. And it still doesn't work in like cities because we just get stuck in traffic all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ford famously had to create like an entire, you know, uh, system around like, you know, being a, like, you know, saying we pay our workers at the Ford factory a wage where they can afford to buy a Ford car, right? It was about creating a, a demand for the supply that they were pumping out. But yeah, I mean, all this shit is for It, it was people. not
2: just that, right? Like with Ford, it was not just paying people a high enough wage. They had a whole department that worked on, um, you know telling workers how they should live how they should you know live in these families the kind of homes they should live in the ways that that they should live in this like way that was like for the future and would look good for the company and would be better for them like they helped design these social relations that were then embedded within the society you know as decades passed right so i think it's really fascinating
1: yeah i mean that that is a That That is a really good point as well. I mean, just to expand on that a little bit, like the historian Richard Snow, who wrote a uh, a book about Ford, says, quote, to qualify for his doubled salary, the worker had to be thrifty and continent. He had to keep his home neat and his children healthy. And if he were below below the age of 22, he had to be married. Uh, and so, yeah, this was part of Ford's, what what they called the sociological department of Ford Motors, which would do these like, uh, they would send these, these investigators out to workers' homes, conduct interviews, these in-depth questionnaires, make unannounced visits, um, yeah, to advise workers how to live correctly, to make sure that they were living a, a moral life like in Richard Snow's book on this, he was talking about how like Russian immigrants who worked for Ford, um, compared these investigators to secret police, right? They were like, Oh, these, these are like the czar's secret police. Like they just show up unannounced and make sure that like everyone is living a moral life according to what Ford thinks is a, is a moral life. How, how long until, uh, Amazon starts doing that with, <laughs> with the warehouse workers, right? Like,
2: Um, That was exactly what was on my mind.
3: I mean, they're doing it at like, you know, part of the safety wellness program that they're rolling out, the working well program is regimenting how you live your life by saying that because you're an industrial athlete, you need to eat a certain amount of nutrients a day. You need to work out. You need to wake up at a certain time. You need to sleep at a certain time. You need to uh, be mindful of your mental state. You need to do all these things uh, where it's like, oh, you got to stretch before your shift right? Which means you got to come in a little bit earlier before your shift. Which means you need to wake up earlier, but you also need to leave enough time for breakfast because you got to hit the food groups. You have to make sure that you are coming in nutritious and you also have to pack snacks. One of the more dystopian ones was like, you got to go, when you go home, so treat yourself, soak yourself in a nice bath because your body's going to be sore. You know, If your feet are swollen, get shoes while they're swollen so that next time they don't hurt you know like just nightmare <laughs> shit you know that is a virtue and constitution of a good worker right they
1: they they call it this virtue i mean it also is the the kinds of things that um like welfare reform in the us in the 90s right yeah. like clinton's workfare welfare shit right like these social welfare programs had this kind of disciplinarian side to it as well, where like you know people would similarly make these like you know unannounced visits at people's homes that were like getting welfare, and you know there were famously examples of uh, 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 you know they like would visit like a, a like a black single mom's home who was like getting welfare and see like like a like man like men's underwear or something like that in the drawer and be like oh. You 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 sleeping with somebody? You you got a boyfriend? You got you got a secret husband? You're not telling us about? Mm, got all right. You 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 are disqualified for welfare now. Yeah, it is this this. It's a neoliberal authoritarianism which enters into people's personal lives and social lives through this this veil of virtue, right? And yeah, I mean you're totally right. Ed. I,
3: I forgot about that industrial athlete shit. That like and it's widespread. That's exactly what they're doing. A lot of companies do it. I think Amazon is the lightning rod, but a lot of companies do it. Their program is inspired by Boeing's, And Boeing had this fucking setup where they were going around spreading their, their you know, evangelical insight into how to reformulate work and grinding working conditions throughout the industry, right? I mean, this
0: is um, sinister shit, right? Never really left after Ford, you know? It's quite presumptuous of Amazon to think that their workers have bathtubs. You know, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's quite presumptuous to think that they're workers that have homes. I mean, there are a lot of people that work for Amazon in Washington State, especially Washington State, that are living in their cars.
2: Well, when Ed said that, like it made me think of the camper force program, right? Which is documented in Jessica Bruder's book, Nomad Land, which was turned into the movie. Um, But about how they recruit these people who live in like trailers and vans and things like that to work in the seasonal periods. And like those workers talk about like going back to their campers at the end of the day and like just having to lie in bed because they're in so much pain and like take a bunch of painkillers. Um, you know they're not able to sit in some hot bath like it's freezing cold in a lot of the places where the where they're staying, and you know their campers get super cold. It's like this isn't possible.
3: <laughs> they should have chosen a different camper. I mean that is what a virtuous <laughs> Amazon worker would have done. Right? That's why they're not. That's not why they're not getting promoted.
1: Yeah, they should have got especially. the luxury camper with
3: a bathtub built in. Right. <laughs> they could have gone from Amazon. They exactly. could have just. They could have paid for it with <laughs> the flexible a Flexible pricing program that may have garnished wages at a competitive but fair rate for the next few years, right?
2: And that's why they're not getting the promotion, not because Jeff Bezos doesn't believe that warehouse workers shouldn't be promoted in the company and should be kicked out of the door after yes. uh, less which than a Which is also,
3: yeah, which is the uh, in which came which comes out of the report that the New York Times had. Um, which is that what like Bezos is kind of not low key discussed disgusted with the idea that, and I think this also informs the anti-union opposition, the idea that, te- that his warehouse jobs are anything other than a temp job, right? Mm-hmm. You should be out under a year, which explains so much about like hiring practices, like the hiring to fire, like the high churn rate, like the, the really oppressive working conditions, like time off task and all these other things that like seem unusually cruel but actually make total sense if you just think that like anyone who stays there for any amount of time is a freak right
2: Mm. it is fascinating though if you think about how uber has kind of churned through the low-income workforce and is now having Mm -hmm. a really difficult time finding people to drive their ubers you know amazon is also churning through the low-wage workforce really quickly um and so when does it reach the point when You know, they've already had everyone who could possibly work for Amazon work for Amazon, and now they're struggling to find people to work there. And I think that's already happening. That's why you're seeing wage increases and things like that. It's not because Jeff Bezos uh, all of a sudden saw the light and now he believes in a million dollar minimum wage.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good point. I haven't haven't thought about it also with Uber's, the connection between Uber's and Lyft's incredibly high churn rate like the last year we have data for it's plus 90%, it's almost 95% um, with like, and I'm assuming it's been consistently that for the past few years, because it was that for those for the few years preceding it, that high churn rate. And then them just like at the end of the day, having like a set pool of workers who they can pull from. Like it's not, it's like only like it gets larger and smaller as working conditions progress, but it's specific groups of people who are more likely to work for these companies and these companies burn through them at prodigious rates, right? So yeah, the question does emerge: when is when is enough enough? When and I'm I, I wish, I wish we knew like also internally what their discussions of this must be because I'm sure they have uh, estimates and analysis of like what's the bare minimum we can increase something without actually having to uh, you know significantly increase labor costs and so forth.
1: I think this point about the reserve army of labor and Amazon and Uber and Lyft and these companies through their own business model, like burning through churning through this reserve army of labor, like, you know, I I think that they do see labor and low like low wage labor that they can, you know, uh, Burn out right like quite literally right like burn out like squeeze people of all the surplus value that they can provide all the labor power They can provide and then move on. I think they do see it as this like infinite uh, Sustainable resource right like this is the real sustainability uh, For for companies like Amazon and uber right is a labor power as an infinite resource
2: Yeah. And I get the impression that, you know, maybe Ed would know more about, um, the Uber side of things, but it feels like they do not have a good grasp on their labor pool and the, the amount of workers that are available to them and ensuring that they have enough to, you know, deliver their service, which I think we're now seeing the impacts of. Um, but it does seem like Amazon is having those conversations, at least that's what the New York times report seemed to suggest. Um, was that part of the reason that we saw the $2 increase during the pandemic, and we've seen other increases as well, even after they took that away, was to bring workers back who weren't coming back to work. Um, And they've also changed, they used to have um, a rule where workers would get fired, even if they had like just one bad day, And they revoked that rule and said anyone who previously was not allowed to reapply because of this rule can reapply now. So you can come back to Amazon. So it seems like there are these policies that are changing because they're recognizing that they're not able to get the labor that they need, especially as Amazon is still significantly expanding. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch moving forward.
1: Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna bring that up as well. The, the repeat hires as well, where it's this idea of like you work for Amazon for a year, or whatever, you get burned out, and you gotta go take your uh, your year sabbatical and recover and recuperate, so you can come back to Amazon at full power and get burned out all over again, right? That that's that's the real career uh, being offered here um, for for these people, and you know. I want to bring up as well, but before before we move on, right? Like we talk a lot about Amazon. I also do want to give a shout out to um, friend of the show Alex Press's new podcast, Primed, um, which is just fantastic, right? Like like we, we need more of this critical attention on Amazon, and I, I love that Alex is like you know focusing so in depth on really trying to to grasp. Um, Amazon in its full complexity and multiplicity as well. And, I, you know, now is the right time for it, right? Like I had, I, w- I was like tweeting out, uh, you know, this was a while ago now, but I was thinking about like, you know, in my book, I had a I have a whole section looking at the like techno politics of labor and Amazon warehouses and the labor process. And and like when I wrote that section, which you know back in like 2019, I was like, uh, like kind of worried, like, is this played out? Like is it like this, like is this case study like You know, too like, is this too well trodden territory? I was like, no, like I I think it's still really interesting and illustrative. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this in there. And then when the book was published in March 2020, I had that same thought. I was like, is like, all right, like now this is like this has gotta be a played out case study, right? And then like shortly after that, when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh no, no, no. This is actually okay, no, we need we need a lot more of this ongoing analysis and, and investigation. Cause this shit is it's not static. It's very dynamic. It's constantly ongoing and developing in new ways. And yeah, work by people like Alex Press, um, Alec McGillis, who's at ProPublica and has his book Fulfillment, um, responded to my tweet being like, like, no, this is well put. And like, you know, th- this is you're exactly right. Like, this is like, this is not played out. Like, there's still so many more stories to tell here. Um, but we were talking about before we started recording, it's like, has there been a corporation in at least in like recent history that has had such a huge 180 turn right that went from like for decades being the most trusted institution in the united states being a darling everybody loving it and then in the course of uh, over this last year just being as ed called it a lightning rod right i mean you know when the new york times starts throwing out like you know 15,000 word interactive stories on a topic like the churn rate right not even about like the whole thing just focusing on the churn rate at amazon something is up something is wrong right like it I, I, it's hard for me to think of a of a of a single corporation that not one that has become a lightning rod for criticism and investigation but has become so after doing a complete 180 in terms of uh, um you know, general public perception, although as Alex said in our episode with her, uh, which is right, is that um, we are somewhat in a uh, an echo chamber, right, in terms of, uh, you know, like, I, I still talk to people now who are not really quite, like, people who are academics, you know, they don't study technology uh, like we do and stuff, but, you know, they're, you know, very smart people who pay attention to current affairs and stuff, but, like, you know, not even really aware of who Jeff Bezos is, right? They're just kind of vaguely like Jeff Bezos, oh, that name sounds familiar, Um, you know? So uh, there. as Alex was saying, it's like, I think we do have to also wonder how much has public perception changed versus how much has just like media attention on it, which is a prerequisite for that public re- perception changing. But, I don't know. Where do you guys, uh, Paris and Ed, like? Where do you think that we are in that in that shift, that tech lash, that Amazon lash, um, that like kind of changing public perception on not only technology in general, right? Like you know the ascension of Luddism, um, but also just like critical attention on something like Amazon.
3: You know, Evgeny Morozov talks a bit about how we're in the middle of like an interregnum in that there's an attempt to legitimize a new narrative, or I think like there's a recognition that the old one is not going to do among most of like the savvy and like, um, Intelligence is too generous. Um, Self aware tech insiders, right? Um, the tech executives, tech founders, tech, in- tech investors, and then there is like, you know, sympathetic and like sincere in some places, and in other places not. Attempts by like those who might cover them or are interested in writing about them to participate in a similar sort of construction of a new narrative, whether that's like the uh, rehabilitating the old one or coming up with a new one. And I so that I, th- I very much feel like we're in an open open field where like a bunch of ideas are contesting each other, but that still the language we all speak in is the one that we've been indoctrinated with for like the past decade, which is very much like still background assumption is that Silicon Valley remains the best way to solve social and political problems. And we just haven't figured out a proper way to harness it. That the startup is the best way to solve a problem and By proxy, the market is the best way to solve a problem. Like those are very much still underlying assumptions. I think the difference now from ten years ago and now is like uh, you'd be hard pressed to find people like as eagerly believing specific companies are the answers, but they still think the system is right. But I do think people are open to like when you sit and you press them and you provide them with all the examples and a framework. To, they're much more open to, I think, perspectives they might not have been otherwise, right? I don't know if you could have, like, I mean, you could have written about Luddism. People did write about Luddism. You know, we had the boy, uh, I forget his fucking name, Thomas Thomas uh, Pinkon, or Pike I can't say his last name. Pied Thomas Con, Piketty? Pinchon. Oh,
1: yeah, no. Oh, Thomas Pinchon. Pinchon.
3: Pinchon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a uh, secret Luddite. And has some stuff written about what I and writings about ludism, right? But I mean, he's also like a weird eccentric figure in, in, in his own way, right? But you, I think like mainstream there have been discussions of ludism, and there's been writing about ludism for years and years and years. But like the idea of, but the core ideas working there. Not everything has a right to exist just because it was made. That we should like be a lot more critical and slow. That we should unravel some things or stuff that I think has only been able to thrive because like of this interregnum period it feels like
2: yeah um i would larger largely agree with that and before i provide my perspective i'd say you know i think jathan your book really holds up really well and i feel the same way like i've, I've written this book now and it doesn't come out until sometime next year and i'm like is this gonna hold up like is this gonna is, is this still gonna resonate um so i'm crossing my fingers and hope hoping that it works out like yours did um but you know on your on your question I think it's really interesting to see how narratives have shifted around Amazon and how Amazon does this get this more kind of critical coverage. Um, But I would also agree with Alex that I think we are in a bubble. I think, you know, when I talk to people who are not really up on these things, um, you know, they order from Amazon, they rely on Amazon, Uh they don't really know a whole lot about the negative stuff that Amazon has been up to what it's been doing with its workers. Like, I still think that, is um, kind of the the place of people who pay a lot of attention to tech and possibly who pay attention to a certain type of media. But I don't know how much that has kind of made it out into the public. I think the Bessemer, the Bessemer Union drive and the, the media around that maybe helped to get it to some more people. I hope it did. But I think that there's still this issue where a lot of people aren't paying attention to this. A lot of people rely on this. And, you know, I I think that is possibly a failure of media, you know, as Ed was saying, like, there's still this belief that even if we're criticizing Amazon, even if we're criticizing Facebook, there's still a belief that these tech companies are kind of The way that things are going to get solved or this this mode of developing technology and technology itself is going to save us from these issues if we just let it develop in the right way if we, if we, you know, break up the big ones and let let new technology companies form, then that's going to kind of be our solution. Um, And I think that you know hopefully the work that we're trying to do is to kind of dispel those arguments and you know obviously there's a lot more people who are doing that as well and you know i think it's interesting to also see how there's this new kind of um g- group of people like this new kind of thought leader um collective that is kind of forming mm-hmm. like people with people like Tristan Harris who are trying to say like you know these these companies are bad some of the things they're doing are bad but like you know, we still need to trust in this way of doing things in in these technologies to solve these problems. And I think that is still kind of the perspective that we get from most media, you know, I would say that obviously motherboard where ed works is one of these places that gives us a different perspective that gives us this critical perspective regularly. And that I think is really welcome. I think one zero used to do in general a very good job of this there were some things i disagreed with there but generally i really liked it and unfortunately that was shut down by medium because they want to do a Substack now um you know i think rest of world is doing really interesting coverage they have shifted Mm -hmm. more from a business oriented publication when they started to more of a labor oriented publication i still have some criticisms of what they're doing and i still have questions about where their money is coming from and so what's going to happen down the road but i think that is really interesting to watch I think in the in like the the kind of larger sphere of things, these these um, tech publications, the mainstream media publications like the New York Times, there has been a shift there. But I think in those, there's still this desire to believe. They still want to believe, right? Um, and you know, obviously, that's a big problem when we think about wanting people to have these critical perspectives about technologies and the companies that we rely on every day, because you know, you're not really going to turn against technology if you still want to believe that, you know, these gadgets are really cool, that we need them in our lives, that these tech companies and founders that they're talking to are really good people on the inside, just really bleeds. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that, that there's still an issue there. And I think that even when they criticize Amazon, even when they will talk to the people who do the content moderation on Facebook and see that things are really negative there, they still want to believe that Facebook is a positive thing in the end or that it can be saved or that if Facebook can't do it, then another tech company can do it. Um, you know, they'll still repeat the bullshit that comes out of Amazon that comes out of Uber, um, when they release these press releases. So you get this kind of uncritical positive coverage right next to this critical coverage. Um, so you know, I think there's still an issue there. I think there's things that are still evolving that are still happening. Um, you know, I think it's positive that we're seeing more critical coverage. Obviously, I welcome that, but I, I'm not sure that these perspectives have, have these perspectives have completely broken through to the general mm-hmm. public in a way that we would want. Um, but you know, obviously, that's something that we'll need to keep working on and trying to make this happen.
3: You know, I, when I did that Gravelle Institute video, you know, I read. I would say most of the comments and most of them were people just frankly, just being like, I had no idea it was this bad, which was a, a surprise it feels like. And I think, you know, congealing or converging on that bubble point, right. I feel like I know it very well. I feel like I harp about it to every single person who knows me. I feel like I, uh, I mean, to the point where people will, uh, apologize in advance or, you know, like, uh, Profess guilt if they're like ordering a car around me you or know, one of the services. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, you know, to see th- literally thousands of comments where people are like I had no idea this was how it worked, and it's like, what? like really, like I feel like I just got, I just like gave you the the bare bones sort of like framework of how it worked, and most people, you know, hadn't come across that before was was really really uh, interesting, and I think also. On, also on your point, I really agree with what you were saying too about like that disparity between critical and non-critical coverage. I feel like I wrote, I did like a thread a while ago about why, like one of the reasons I found myself identifying pretty strongly with Luddism is because of that, right? You see, um, you see people talking about how horrible some of the outcomes of these technology companies are. And then the proposals are lukewarm at best. Facebook has incited a genocide, we need an oversight board, you know. Like, what the fuck is how does how does that mesh with one another? Amazon is destroying the bodies of hundreds of thousands of people in this country and laying waste to small businesses or medium businesses or whatever, and consolidating and swallowing huge swaths of the economy. Let's get them to testify, you know. Like, it's just it's it, and that and, and it is like this almost at almost every single level. Like some of the leading commentators. Or not. I remember we had a conversation about Facebook once, right, and saying like, should Facebook even exist, right? I think like most leading commentators would not even like really think that's a serious question. When mm-hmm. I'm not even, I st- I find my, I don't know. Should we have a global communication network at this point right now, or should we, or, and, or should we have a global communication platform run the way that Facebook is, right? No, <laughs> I don't think so, right? But how do you uh, articulate that? or get that perspective through, um, to a group of commentators who already you know, believe that it should exist because it's here. And so we just need to work on it. And then as a result of that, like, how do you also speak to all the other people who like either because they just have lives, they're full of work. And so they don't, they can't pay attention to it or because the coverage is like, so hegemonic and like a very base level that they don't really see the criticisms or they don't need to like dig in or look at these things because they're told that it doesn't affect their life or it really doesn't affect their life. Right. And, in, in, in immediately obvious ways. And I feel like like those are also hard problems too, right? How do we do propaganda better than a lot of these corporations do, but not on the media and on the, and on these communications networks or maybe on them too, but also in the public, right? Because we do like, they have the benefit of like being literally you interface with them directly. Whereas like, if you're trying to do a critical perspective, you have to do all this other shit to get in front of a person. Right, Mm. if they're not in your community, or if they're not a neighbor, if they're not someone in your immediate social uh, network, right, or connections. Yeah, it's hard.
1: It is hard. I mean, we have a we have a really hard task of counter propaganda, right? Which is really what I, you know, we call TMK agitprop against innovation and capital. I mean that that is what we have to do, though. We have to do agitprop. We have to do this counter propaganda because it just even makes me think of um, uh, right, like that. That profile of Chamath Palihapitiya that we talked about, uh, you know, a, a while ago. In there, there is a quote from uh, Kara Swisher, right, who is, you know, a New York Times opinion columnist, uh, you know, has been called uh, the most powerful tech journalist uh, in the U.S., right? Just like a, a hugely, hugely influential, uh, popular um tech journalist who in, you know, in in the, in this, in this profile, this New Yorker profile of, of um, she's quoted as saying, quote, I shouldn't like Chamath, but I do. He's a blowhard, but that's not a crime. And he's not a malevolent fuck like so many of them. Yes, he is. (laughs) Like what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Which I think just shows you as well of like, where so much of so much of this is right like even the even the 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 critics right the uh i mean i don't know if i would ever call kara swisher a critic but you know she's a you know a very well-known influential tech journalist um who ought to know better right but is quoted in a new york new yorker profile being like i shouldn't like him but eh, he's, he's a lovable guy, you know, he's a, uh, he's a blowhard, but at least he's not malevolent and malicious. And it's like, what are you on? Right.
2: <laughs> Swisher does this a lot too. And like, it, it's not just Swisher, but yeah, you know, you see Kara Swisher also doing this stuff with these CEOs, like treating them, you know, as they're just nice people who are doing evil things, um, which, which just doesn't make sense. And even, you know, it, there's also this this kind of which you see with a lot of tech journalists, this kind of history of saying like, oh, yeah, self-driving cars or oh, yeah, this technology or oh, yeah, that company like it has to exist It's doing this world changing thing. And then a few years later when it's like, no, actually, it's doing a lot of really shitty things. It's like, oh, wow, look, it's doing these really shitty things. But mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. you know, good guy, right?
3: Yeah, I, I can think of a dozen right now that are like, I like them but my god they were saying they were they they were part of the problem they were really part of the problem they were like at the front of the hurricane, you know yeah
1: <laughs> yeah it, it is this i it is i mean again we've said it before but there is a reason why we begin every episode with hello friends and enemies (laughs) you have to know who your friends and who your enemies are and you can't treat them as like you know some duality of man type of bullshit right (laughs) like uh chamath is both my friend and my enemy (laughs) like no (laughs) no man
0: (laughs) And i'm not surprised that you know, someone like Palahapatia has like someone on his corner. I mean, serial killers have groupies too. So, you know,
1: <laughs> there's something, you know, there's something. I, I mean, someone like uh, Palahapatia is a, is a spe- you know, I mean, there's a reason why we call him a grifter, right? He's a snake oil salesman. He's, he's this Pied Piper, as the New Yorker profile calls him, right? But like, yeah, no, and you guys are all totally right. And, and uh, Paris, your point there as well. It's like, even now, you know they wanna they wanna be buddy buddy, right? It's I mean you know we can say a you know broader points about access journalism or or whatever, but like at the end of the day, like you know I think that I think there is a lot of hesitancy for taking an adversarial approach, and and the point that you were making there, both uh, you know Ed and Paris as well, around like taking that adversarial approach means having to do a lot of uphill work to even get to that point of being able to make that point where it's so much easier to just like do an interview with Paul do an interview with Mark Andreessen or with Zuckerberg or whatever, and be like, you know, you know, we need to hear their viewpoint. We need to hear what they think about these issues, right? Rather than actually being antagonistic and adversarial towards it. I mean, I, I will say as well, just as just as a a, a, a a bit of an upper on what has become a bit of a downer um, is that I do think as well that at least, you know, in our in our leftist sphere, I think that something like Luddism is ascendant. Right. I do see just over this last year, you know, just just with, you know. I, I, I do, Yeah, you know, I think TMK and Tech Won't Save Us have gone a long way towards at least making this, shifting that Overton window, right? Making something like, you know, resuscitating and repairing the good name of Ned Blood, which has been dragged through the mud for hundreds of years, right? And
3: uh, In the beautiful books by our friends that have been coming out that are exactly, uh, good words towards the Luddites. Yeah, Gavin's book, you
1: know, uh breaking things at work, right? Um uh, you know, Aaron Aaron Beninov's work, right? Like there's been a lot of Brian Martin has
2: a book coming out soon on yeah. you know, a lot of Yeah, well.
1: I'm, I'm so psyched for Brian's book, uh Blood in the Gears, I think it's called. Um and I'm so psyched for that. Like so I I do think that there is an ascendancy of Luddism. I mean, I just had a uh, An editor for the conversation just like, like DM me out of the blue, being like, Hey, could you write a piece for us about Luddism and like about like Luddism's ascendancy and like it's like like resurgence right now? I was like, Yeah, absolutely, I can do that. Right. So, <laughs> so I think that there is some some interest in that. And I do think as well that at least in the tech media, um, in general, there's less hesitancy than there was even just a, a year or two ago around saying the word capitalism, uh, which I think is crucial, right? Because, uh, I mean, good listeners of TMK and Tech Won't Save Us will know that when we talk shit about technology, what we're really talking shit about is um, technology under capitalism or innovation for and by capital, right? Like that that's what we're really talking shit about. And I think that there's a lot less hesitancy now, you know, the style guides allow you to say the word capitalism in an opinion piece or something like that, uh, knowing that it's not going to immediately turn off all, like, like the whole audience or the whole readership. Like, I think people are becoming much more um, open to criticisms that focus on capitalism, that say the word capitalism.
2: I think I would also say, and not like to toot our own horns here, um, but that I think it's becoming even more important to have people like us, you know, outside the tech media. I know Ed is in it, but, you know, Ed is in a certain part of it. Um, I'm a fifth columnist. Yeah, exactly. Kind Kind of pushing back and kind of presenting these these really critical perspectives to hopefully influence some of what goes on in these larger publications and in some of these broader moods because at the same time as these large publications as the tech media as the mainstream media and their tech verticals have adopted a slightly more critical perspective on Silicon Valley and these major tech companies Silicon Valley itself is reacting to that right they are trying mm-hmm. to fund journalism reporting or you know journalism in scare quotes Um, that presents the Silicon Valley narrative and presents this positive coverage that they feel that they are missing in these major publications now because there is a bit of criticism that's happening, right? And so on the one hand, we have these really well-financed billionaires who are getting more and more interested in entering the media space um, to get these kind of pro-Silicon Valley, uncritical Silicon Valley narratives into the the public sphere, the public imagination more than they have been in the past few years. Back to this kind of pre twenty sixteen time, before there was more criticism in these larger outlets. And so, I think it's important that there is also kind of a, a counter to that. Even though we have you know far less resources, far less of a platform than those people, you know, there needs to be this challenge. So, hopefully, you know, there can be some sort of like countervailing force or, or force kind of pushing back on what they're trying to do.
1: Absolutely, (laughs) I mean, I think we're coming up on time now, and uh, I I think that's a nice way to kind of wrap this up. You know, we we should toot our own horn every once in a while, right? Right. (laughs) We 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 deserve it. It's called self care, and you know what? We we (laughs) (laughs) self care. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, this has just been. Uh, a, a great conversation, like I said, a long time coming. Um, everyone should know where to find you, Paris, but in case they don't, um, give us the rundown of tech won't save us, where to find you, your work, and what to look out for next.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, I'm at Paris Marks on Twitter. All the things I do are on there. Um, if you are interested in another critical tech podcast and you're not listening to it already, you know, any of the major podcast platforms, search up tech won't save us and you'll find me or at tech won't save us on, uh, Twitter. And, you know, if you like newsletters or you like podcasts and newsletters, you can also subscribe to the hammer and get a weekly update on critical tech news. Um, you know, that's not going to be. Uh, you know, positive about these tech companies or, you know, giving a a kind of beneficial um, perspective to these major CEOs and whatnot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we all, we all subscribe, we all listen to tech won't save us and the hammer. And, you know, for, for people who might not cross over between the two, uh, you know, highly recommend it because while we're all like, you know, TMK, Tech Won't Save Us and Trash Future are all kind of existing as like sibling podcast in, in various ways. We all do so in very different styles and very different approaches as well. So it's not, you know, you're not getting the same thing repeated at you by three different uh, groups of podcasters, you know, per week or whatever. You're, you're getting... Uh, a much rounder view um, and a much different style of looking at it through our our three podcasts, right? And the, I mean, there's a reason why there's been so much crossover between between the three of us, right? Between our three podcasts, is that uh, you know we're all we're all trying to work towards the same uh, the same goals, doing so in different ways. But I think creating an alternative, uh, you know, critical tech. Um, kind of media sphere, podcasting bubble for for people to, you know, get these counter narratives, get this agitprop, get this propaganda against Silicon Valley and startups and capital and all that bullshit.
3: Yeah. Why do, why do capitalists get to have all the bubbles? You know, it's about time. It's about time <laughs> we make our own, right? That's
1: right. The capitalists have New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. Sometimes and speculative assets times. and real <laughs>
3: estate and cryptocurrency and <laughs> NFTs. We get, the, we get the critical tech media bubble. We yeah, right. That's right.
2: <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't pop when the pandemic's over though and everyone oh, yeah. you know, goes back <laughs> yeah. into the Yeah. Line. Yeah.
3: <laughs> to the moon. We're going yeah. to the moon. You just have to fucking hold.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Uh the real red planet here is not Mars.
3: Communism. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs>
1: right.
3: For our next episode, we'll have Kim Stanley Robinson on to talk yeah. about his award-winning novel.
1: Oh, bro. Red. Don't, uh, don't <laughs> use that. Cause low key, not even low key, high key. would fucking love to get Kim Stanley Robinson on.
3: So. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lure him on. He's an anarchist too. I'll get him.
1: Yeah. He's been on the Antifada. They did a fucking great episode with him and he's a socialist. He's an anarchist. like, that he was art. on Chapo,
2: like, I don't know, a long time ago.
1: All right, it's right. It's time. All right, it's, it's time. time. It's time. <laughs> the TMK and Tech Won't Save Us. That's the real home for Kim Stanley Robinson. All right, that, I'm putting on. Stan
3: Stan Graham. <laughs> through the stars, through blood.
1: I'm putting this on my vision board for uh, for 2021. (laughs) Kim (laughs) Stanley Robinson. Uh, (laughs) All right. This has been fantastic. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, You can find us at slash this machine kills. You can also find uh, Paris and Tech Won't Save Us on Patreon. Plug that link real quick. Where can people find you on Patreon?
2: Patreon.com slash tech won't save us.
1: (laughs) There you go. There you go. So subscribe to both of our wonderful, lovely shows. Uh, And you can get, you know, from from TMK, you can get uh, premium episodes every single week. Unlike Paris, who refuses to put things behind a paywall, we are on the paywall grift. Uh, (laughs) 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 So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we will see y'all then. Later.